Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, uh, in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Our sermon text for this morning comes from Acts chapter 2. We're actually just looking at, uh, what is that, four or five verses this morning. Acts 2, verses 37 through 41. And before we read that, I want to pray. But before we even pray, I want to say, if if you were not here at 9 o'clock for the Sunday school class... um, uh, you're missing out. We, uh, we have started to go back into the book of Nehemiah. We're studying Nehemiah. Uh, we studied the first seven chapters last spring, and we're picking up with chapter 8 this morning. And the reason I bring it up now uh, is not just because I want you to come, which I do, but uh, because as we read through Nehemiah, it struck me uh, how many parallels there were between Nehemiah chapter 8 and, uh, and the day of Pentecost, and particularly with our, our sermon this morning. So if you were here and, and listened through that and, and uh, read through that chapter uh, and talked about it with us together, then uh, it, it'll, it'll inform uh, even the, the preaching of the Word right now. So, so come Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock, for, for Sunday school uh, to study through Nehemiah. Yeah, come. Uh, <laughs> Acts chapter 2. Let's pray first. First we pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, that your word uh, tells one grand story of redemption. And uh, that story is found in the book of Nehemiah. And that story is found in the book of Acts. And we thank you that we can see your work throughout. Uh, we can see the work ultimately of Christ throughout and of his redemption from sin. Uh, and Father, we can see the call to us throughout to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, our Savior. We pray, Father, that uh, this morning you would be with us as we read your word. Uh, we pray that you would enable us to hear it, uh, enable us to receive it. Uh, we pray that you would change us by it in a way that brings honor and glory to your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, when uh, Nathaniel was little... Uh, we uh, were living at Deborah's parents at the time, and he had gotten big enough that he could climb out of his crib. And if you have kids, you remember that moment where suddenly you realize that they're not contained anymore. Uh, he could climb out of his crib. You know, we would put Nathaniel in his crib, and we would say, stay in bed. And, of course, he would inevitably climb out. And he could climb out just fine but he couldn't climb back in. And it struck me then, as it strikes me now, as an accurate metaphor for life. 
Uh, we find it easy to disobey, but it is much harder to make things right. And this continues throughout life, doesn't it? Uh, regardless of our stage of life, our ability to get ourselves into a mess always seems greater than our ability to get ourselves out. What did Nathaniel need? Well, he needed me to come and, and make things right. He needed me to come and put him back in his crib, among other things. He, he needed help from the outside. He needed someone to do for him what he could not do for himself. Well, maybe you remember where we are in the book of Acts. Peter has just proclaimed for all Israel to hear that Jesus has been exalted by the Father as Lord and Christ. Jesus, who was rejected by men, was raised up by God the Father. And last week, we simply looked at the exalted Christ. We looked at Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, we looked at Jesus as the resurrected Lord and King. But this week, uh, we're going to look at the response of those who heard Peter's message. We're going to ask the question, uh, how should we respond to Jesus as Lord and Christ, or, or what do we really need? And uh, we're going to see uh, four things. You can see it in your bulletin. Uh, there's an outline in the bulletin on your back of your bulletin. There are four things listed there. Uh, one, we, we need to see the mess we're in. Two, uh, we need to ask the right question. Three, we need to turn and be rescued. And fourth, FYI, yes, this is for you. So how should we respond to Jesus as the resurrected Lord and Christ? Uh, first, we need to see the mess that we're in. One of the questions I want you to ask yourselves as uh, we're going through the text this morning is, is what part of my life, what part of my life is still hands off to Jesus? Now, if you're not a Christian, you may think, well, all of it, all of it is hands off to Jesus. My life is my life. That's the way I like it. Thank you very much. But if you are a Christian, I want you to uh, take your time with this question. Jesus wants all of you. What, what parts of your life are still hands off to him? Jesus wants our life laid at his feet. He wants our hearts. But for many of, up, for many of us, we, we offer all kinds of substitutes instead of our hearts, right? We, we offer religious activity. We offer our good theology. Uh, we offer our morality. We offer pieces of ourselves, but not our whole selves, not our whole hearts up to him. And oftentimes, uh, what we offer actually gets in the way, right? Because that, that religion or that theology or that morality, it lulls us into a false sense of security. We think we're in a good place. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to make light, right? But uh, as Brian has already prayed this morning um, and talked about, there are lots of people in Texas and in Florida who probably thought earlier this summer that they were in a good place. And suddenly, reality breaks in. 
Pentecost, the day of Pentecost for, for Peter's hearers, really started out in a good place. Uh, it, it was Pentecost, after all, right? It was the feast of the first fruits. Thousands of people had come to Jerusalem for this festival to celebrate. They, they, they came to the temple uh, to give thanks for God's good gifts. And then there was a wind and a fire, and people began to speak in many languages, and Peter gets up to talk. And though the day started out as a celebration, by the end of Peter's sermon, we read this in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why? What happened? Uh, what affected them so that they would start the day with celebration and end the day with being cut to the heart? Well, look back, just one verse, even to verse 36. Peter says there... Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Jesus was rejected by men. He went to the cross. He suffered and he died. But that was not the end of the story. And, and uh, Peter said earlier in Acts 2, verses 23 and 24, he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, Peter is saying, you crucified this Jesus, but God raised him up as Lord and Christ. Why is it that Peter's hearers are, are cut to the heart? They realize their complicity in the murder of the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, came to put things right for his people, and they put him to death. Many of Peter's hearers were probably in the crowd just a, a few uh, weeks earlier when they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And yet it wasn't until the resurrection... And Peter's explanation of what had happened, that suddenly they get it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, if that is so, suddenly they really get it. We have crucified the Messiah. The one God sent to renew the world, we rejected. And you can see then why in verse 37, suddenly they're crying out, and we're told that when they heard this, they are cut to the heart. Now, it would be wrong to see this sin of rejecting the Messiah as kind of an isolated event in their lives. It's not as if well, they were just good people and this was just an accident. Look down at verse 40. In verse 40, uh, Peter will cry out, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And that phrase, this crooked generation, is not just God's way of saying, oh, they're bad people. Moses and the Psalms talk about Israel as a crooked and twisted generation. Deuteronomy and, and the Psalms talk about Israel as a stubborn and rebellious generation. Even Jeremiah talks about Israel as a generation of God's wrath. 
Jesus used the same language in his day uh, when he called his generation a faithless and twisted generation, an evil generation. And he warned that Nineveh would rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What was it about, quote, this generation that made it so bad? All those times when that phrase is used, there were all times when, when God was at work, even miraculously, in the midst of his people, but the people, God's people, were too hard-hearted to see it. And God ends up condemning this generation. They rejected God. They rejected his messengers. They refused to listen to his word. Now, they were... They were Religious, they were law-abiding people of God, but in the end, they didn't want anyone, even God, telling them what to do. And so when Jesus drew near Jerusalem, you may remember the city of David, right? The, the place where God caused his name to dwell. Jesus drew near and he wept. Why did he weep? Because God's own people did not receive their Messiah, did not receive their king. Jesus, the promised Christ, had come, and they rejected him. And judgment, Jesus knew, was sure to follow. And so, as we read in the Gospels, Israel, especially the religious leaders, falsely accuse Jesus. They cry out for his crucifixion. And even when Jesus is on his way to the cross, he sees some women along the road. They're weeping for him, you may remember. And he, and he looks at those women, and he says to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. See, Jesus knew that Jerusalem would be judged by God for their hard-heartedness. And he says, weep for yourselves. This generation rejected the Messiah. And they did that not just as an isolated error. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a blip in an otherwise flawless record. It was the outcome and the culmination of a life lived in rebellion against God. Now, Israel was God's chosen people. He wanted their all. He wanted their hearts. But in the end, they wanted to decide what God could touch and what he couldn't. And as soon as God started messing with their lives and shaking things up a bit, they show their true colors and they, they, uh, God's people living in rebellion against God reject their Messiah. And so we need to notice, Peter's hearers, the day of Pentecost, they're, they're Jewish people, they're God's people. Uh, they were very religious. They knew all the answers, right? They, they went through all the motions. They kept God's law. They were there to celebrate the feasts, after all. But their religion and their theology and their morality could not save them. Why not? Well, because fundamentally, they were trying to maintain control. Uh, they had found a system that worked for them. It just happened to be God's system. But, but it was still, they were still maintaining control. Uh, and their efforts to save themselves would not work. They needed a Savior. And so Jesus wept at Jerusalem because they had rejected the Savior, and he knew their judgment was coming. And this is the condition of humanity, isn't it? This is uh, our condition. Jesus wants all of me, not, not a part of me, not a piece of me. And yet I insist day by day on holding on to the reins. 
we live in rebellion against God. We ignore his word. We dismiss every warning. We think that, that religion or theology or morality will, will get us through. But Jesus wants all of me, right? I, I offer him pieces here and there. I'm a good person, we think, or I go to church, or I believe the right things. Israel had all of that. But they were living for themselves, and Jesus wept at their condition because he knew what was in their hearts. And as soon as they had the opportunity, the real fruit of that heart showed itself as they rejected the Messiah. Now, why, why murder the Messiah? Well, because you don't want him messing up your plans, right? You don't want him shaking up your life. You don't want him calling the shots and running the show. And so you put him to death. When Peter confronts them with that on Pentecost, they get it. And they cry out and ask a question, what do we do? What do we do? Well, how about you, right? Is your life laid at the feet of the Messiah? Or do you think that, that he will accept a few religious deeds, maybe some good theology, maybe, maybe some morality, as a substitute for your heart? What part of your life is still hands off to Jesus? What part are you still holding on to for yourself? So how are we to respond uh, to Jesus as Lord and Christ? First, we need to see the mess that we're in, that Jesus wants all of me, but I've been offering him pieces, maybe, but holding tightly onto the reins. That means, according to Jesus, we, we face judgment as rebellious subjects who are setting up our own rival kingdoms. We think we're in charge. So one, we need to see the mess we're in. Two, we need to ask the right question. Peter's hearers were cut to the heart. They, had, they experienced regret. Lots of people experience regret, but Peter's hearers follow up that regret by asking the right question. Brothers, what shall we do? Now, it's not actually an easy question to ask. It's not easy, again, because we want to maintain control. I don't like being told what to do. I don't like it when things seem out of my control. We don't want someone else telling us what to do and taking control of our lives. And yet, Peter's here is they're very willing. Just tell us what to do. Why are they so willing? Why are they so willing to give it up? Why are they so willing to seek direction from the outside? Ultimately, it's because they see the bleakness of their situation. They, they were cut to the heart. And as long as, as long as we remain comfortable with our, our guilt, as long as we don't see that bleakness, as long as we find ways to distract ourselves or indulge ourselves or tell ourselves everything's going to be okay, don't worry about it, as long as we find ways to cope with our guilt, as long as we do those kinds of things, we, we can hold on to the illusion of control. It's really not so bad. I need to not worry so much. We found ways, we find ways of being comfortable with our remorse. But it's at that point that we realize, no, I'm in real trouble here. I have lived a life rejecting God, rejecting his Messiah. I have, I have set up myself as my own little sovereign king of my own little rival kingdom. It's at that point that we begin to seek help. You know, uh, a lot of you probably know this, right? I grew up in the church. My dad uh, was a pastor. And uh, as I grew up, I would tell you I was a Christian uh, but I was completely living for the world. 
And I was focused on my kingdom. And yet I tell you, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus and all that stuff. But you know what changed that is, is I started, well, I started hearing the gospel and I thought, okay, uh, I, I believe this. I understand this. I believe this. But wait a minute. If I believe this, why am I living the way I'm living? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And conviction began to set in. And I realized I need to be rescued. I need to be rescued. And it's at that point that you realize, I'm in real trouble here. I can't handle this on my own. I can't fix this. Then and only then will you begin to let go and ask for help. What do I do? What must I do? And now, uh, there is actually, interestingly, there's a strain of Christian teaching that says this is the wrong question. Maybe you've heard this. Um, it says we, we shouldn't ask what we should do, but only what has God done. Now, I am really sympathetic with that teaching uh, because it wants to focus us on grace, right? What has God done in Jesus? It's not about what I do. It's about what God has done. And yet, the focus here, the question here is, is what do I do? Here, uh, we have people who are cut to the heart by the word of God, people in whom the gospel of Jesus' resurrection victory has produced real, genuine mourning over their sin, concrete, specific sin. And sometimes we think, well, if someone is sad about their sin, that's enough, right? I mean, they're, they're sad about it. We think that remorse is repentance. But remorse is not repentance, right? It may be a prelude to repentance, but it's not repentance, you know, Cain felt a kind of remorse when God did not accept his offering. Judas felt a kind of remorse over betraying Jesus. But Cain, out of that remorse, went on to slaughter his brother in cold blood. And Judas fell into despair and hung himself. Neither repented, though they both felt remorse. Remorse and sadness and regret over our sin are not repentance. Uh, it may be the work of the Spirit in your life, but it will not save you. These folks on Pentecost knew that, and so they are cut to the heart, and they cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? And it's the same response uh, of people to the preaching of John the Baptist uh, earlier on in the Gospels. John the Baptist preached at one point, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds responded to him, saying, What then shall we do? And tax collectors ask, teacher, what shall we do? The soldiers ask, and we, what shall we do? It's the same question that the Philippian jailer asks in Acts 16, verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's even the same question Paul asks on the road to Damascus in Acts 22 when he says to Jesus, Lord, what shall I do? And, and the reason that this is the right question is obviously not because you can save yourself. The reason this is the right question is because God calls us to take responsibility for, for where we are. He expects us to do something. In fact, three imperatives follow their, their question, right? Three commands. Peter gives them three things that they are to do, which brings us to our next point. Uh, point three, turn and be rescued. Here's Peter's answer to their question in verse 38. 
he says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Turn and be rescued. Uh, before we spell that out, I think it, it, it's even helpful to go down a, a, another couple verses and notice again that the exhortation of verse 40. Verse 40, Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Is, some, is there something odd about that verse to you? I don't know. When, when, I, when I read it, it, it seems odd to me. That phrase, save yourselves, it kind of bugs me. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not a great Greek scholar, but I did a little digging, right? Uh, and the verb here is passive. It's passive. You know, like an active verb would be Jesus saves me, right? Jesus saves, that's active. Passive would be I am saved by Jesus. And this verb here is passive. It, it can also, though, be middle or reflexive, right? Which is how the translators translated it. Uh, save yourselves, that's reflexive. Sorry for the Greek lesson, but you get it, right? That's reflexive when the act of the verb comes back on the actor. And so if that is right, and of course that's grammatically possible, the, the point is still not that we can save ourselves from our sin, because that's not what Peter says here. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation, uh, echoing, I think, Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, when they call Israel out of Babylon, they say things like Jeremiah 51, 6, flee from the midst of Babylon, let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Uh, it, if it is meant to be middle or reflexive here, the point is there are things that you must do to separate yourself from those who are soon to be judged by God. Come out of this crooked generation. And yet, I think that's not all that's going on here. The, the verb, the, the Greek verb to save here, it, it's found 13 times in the book of Acts. 13 times, and uh, all 13 times it is passive. And every time it's rendered passive, at least every other time, it's rendered as a passive verb, it's rendered be saved, or something similar to that. So Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, Acts 4.12, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And it makes sense, right, that the act of saving would be passive for us. Because who is the Savior? Right? It's not me. It's not you. right? Acts 5.31, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Savior. We are the ones who are saved. Jesus is the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He removes our sin. He makes us new. He promises us a resurrection. And so why translate this verb as save yourselves? Well, because it's not only passive, but it's also an imperative. It's a command. It's a funny kind of command because it's a passive imperative. That's funny to me. Uh, these are the kinds of things I laugh at. I don't know. 
The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, uh, translates it as a command, but as a passive command. It translates it, be saved, as a command, be saved. But how can you command someone to have something done to them? Well, you, you actually can, uh, kind of. Uh, Jesus says to a leper at one point, be clean. It's a passive imperative as well. Not meaning reflexive, cleanse yourself, right? That's not what Jesus means when he says to the leper, be clean. But passively, be clean, with Jesus being the one doing the cleansing. And so Peter says here, be saved from this crooked generation. Passive imperative. It's my new favorite kind of verb. I don't know if I had a favorite kind of verb before this, but this is my new favorite kind of verb. Sometimes this verb is simply reflexive. That's a legitimate way of taking it. But, but I think what it highlights here in Acts, where the context is 12 other passive instances of this phrase, be saved, uh, I think it highlights both our call to act. It's an imperative after all. It's a command, be saved. And yet our call, our need to be acted upon. It's passive. Uh, it, it, it highlights both our call to act and our impotence to do what actually needs to be done. Be saved from this crooked generation. Well, that brings us back up to verse 37, right? How do we be saved? Verse 37 tells us, repent and be baptized. Those, by the way, are the three imperatives, the three commands in this passage, right? Brothers, what shall we do? Repent, be baptized, and be saved. Remember what the problem is, right? This generation, this generation of Israel was living in rebellion against the Father and so had killed the Messiah. God was soon to bring judgment. He did that, by the way, in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. And some Israelites in that day asked the question, well, what do we do now? How do we get out of this mess? And the answer is, like Israel in Egypt or Israel in Babylon, they had to come out of her and be saved. Peter's hearers had to come out of rebellious Israel, which was now like a new Egypt or a new Babylon, which means they must undergo a new exodus, coming out from the people who would be judged. And you remember, you may remember Israel when, when they do come out of Egypt, uh, they're always tempted to turn back. They're always tempted to go back to Egypt again and again. Israel's not expected to save herself, right? But she does need to turn from Egypt and be saved. And that's the command here. Repent. Turn. Have a complete change of mind. Stop thinking like that rebellious people. Once you rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but now acknowledge him. Recognize who he is. And turn and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, be baptized is a passive imperative. Uh, baptism is not something you do. Baptism is something that is done to you by God. Be baptized. Baptism is not primarily about your acceptance of Jesus. God is the actor in baptism, and you are the passive recipient. It's not primarily about your obedience, though it is a command, right? Repent and be baptized. But baptism is primarily about God's grace, which we receive. It's a passive imperative. Be baptized, right? Receive God's grace. 
And here's the, the symbolism that, that Peter is employing, right? As Israel, you may remember, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Israel was baptized into Moses in the sea when they came out of Egypt. They were baptized into Moses in the sea when they came out of Egypt. So Peter calls his hearers to be baptized into the name of Jesus as they come out of this crooked generation. See, a new exodus was happening in Jesus. He was bringing his people out of slavery to sin, out of slavery to death. And we partake of that new exodus by the Spirit who brings us out of the world and unites us to Jesus. But the sign of that Spirit's work is baptism, where we are visibly set apart from the world and set apart for Christ. We are brought out of that old generation, out of that uh, people doomed for judgment and brought into the body of Jesus. Baptism is God's mark that we are a new people, no longer slaves in Egypt, but having left Egypt, we've entered into a new life of this post-Red Sea faith, right? Like Israel's life in the wilderness where we learn to trust God daily for our bread. Well, Peter's hearers are called to make this total break with the old life, right? Turn from it. Think differently. Receive Passive imperative, right? The sign of being joined to Christ, baptism in Jesus' name. By clinging to Christ, where we find, the, we find forgiveness, and we find the power by the Spirit to live different lives. The, the, the eternal consequences of our old life are removed as we cling to Him, and we're given power to live life differently. A life that bears witness to the rejected and risen Messiah. I know that's kind of a lot, uh, but here's the point. Right? Every generation, every generation finds itself confronted with the Messiah. Right? Jesus wants all of me. And every generation has a choice to make. We can continue to live our lives ignoring the Messiah, God's anointed king, the one who was rejected by men but raised by God as Lord and Christ. We can continue to hold on to the reins we can offer Jesus little pieces here and there, some religious activity, uh, some social justice, some theology, some morality, whatever it is we think will appease him. And what that means is, in the end, I maintain control, right? I dole out what I want to Jesus. I continue to reign as my own little sovereign king. I call the shots in my kingdom, giving God what I want when I want to. Or we can repent turn from that old life, and be identified with Jesus through baptism. Baptism into Jesus means I'm his, right? Not just part of me, but all of me. And since I'm his, he pardons and empowers, right? We find forgiveness and new life in his name. This is not a one-time thing, of course, right? Uh, turning and being saved is an everyday thing. Jesus wants all of me, which means every day I must lay myself at Jesus' feet, Every day I offer my heart. Every day I root out the vestiges of this rival kingdom of self. Every day I trace down pieces of my soul that have, have been hands off to Jesus. I repent and I offer them up to him. If you've been trying, uh, if you've been living as, as a rival king with a, with a rival kingdom, you might not turn to Jesus at all. Right? Because you might just despair. Right? I mean, if you're a rival king, uh, you, you're not necessarily going to give yourself up to the king that you've been rebelling against. You know, lots of people see the mess that they're in, 
uh, but they don't ask the right question. They don't turn and, and be rescued because they think that Jesus would never forgive them. Right? He would never forgive me. I've been living too much for myself. So the question then becomes, how can we know that, that, that forgiveness is for you? Right? How can you know that the gift of the Spirit can be yours? Which brings us to the final point. Number four, FYI, this is for you. Verse 39 puts it this way, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Uh, there are at least two questions we need to ask about this verse. One, what is the promise? And two, who is the promise for? Uh, the first one is everything that we've been talking about. Right? The promise is, is ultimately the whole of salvation, as Peter puts it, quoting Joel earlier. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the promise includes both the forgiveness of sins, as Peter says, and, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God promises salvation, right? rescue from sin and judgment and death to all who call on him. Okay, so who is this promise for? Now, I wish I could spend 20 minutes just on this verse, but I can't do that and I won't do that for your sake and mine. And so the point is, whoever you are, this promise is for you. Are you a religious person? You've always lived a moral life. You've attended church ever since you can remember. The promise is for you. Turn and be rescued by Jesus. Or are you a child of Christian parents run, wondering where you fit in? The promise is for you. Right? Turn and be rescued by Jesus. Or maybe you're not a religious person. You're uh, one whom Peter calls those who are far off, right? You're not a religious person. You've been living a completely amoral life. You've rejected God and his church. The promise is for you. Turn and be rescued by Jesus. Peter preaches the promises for you and your children and all who are far off. And 3,000 people believed the word that day. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, rejected by man, but raised up by God the Father. They believed and they were baptized and they found the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. They turned and were rescued by Jesus. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He wants, he wants all of you. He wants your life at his feet, your heart in his hands. Where are you holding back? Right, turn and be rescued. Turn and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would show us the areas of our lives where we, where we have said hands off to Jesus. That you would show us the specifics of that. That you would bring conviction Bring the weight of our guilt on our hearts. Cut us to the heart, Father, that as we see that, we would be able to turn again to our Savior and be rescued, be rescued from ourselves, be rescued from our sin, be rescued from judgment by Jesus because of his grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.